So I, I know there's certain books in people's lives that they say, like when a person brings it up, we all lie about if we've read it or not. And, uh, you know, like, oh yeah, I read that, but we've never read it. One of those books that I used to do that with was uh, The Brothers Karamazov that I was like, oh yeah, I've read that, but I've read parts of it, so I've never really read it. And this is a, a great book. Now, if you're looking at this and you're like, that looks like Jack from, you know, uh, Hawkeye on Disney Plus. Like, I know, right? It's just, it, it's, I think it's the same guy. Um, but I'm only at episode three, so don't ruin it for me. Um, there's actually a really interesting chapter in this book that has continued to jump out at me, and I do reread it every now and then, and it's called A Lady of Little Faith. And this, in this chapter, what we find is this very wealthy woman who visits a monastery, and she connects with this monk. And, and she begins to ask questions about God to this monk. And, and as she asks him, how do I know if God exists? The, the monk kind of explains to her, like, like, no argument that I can give you. There's no explanation that I have that can explain this or, or describe this to you. There's only one thing that I know, and that is you will know God exists when you practice active love. Active love. And she, she kind of pauses and she confesses to him, like, listen, I, I do think about that. I think about what it would be like to give all of this up and to step into, you know, loving the poor and to step into caring for those who are sick. And, and I think about all of those things, living in poverty. But, but, but then, you know, I, I wonder sometimes as I think about this, what, what would I do if, if those people that I'm serving start to complain about how fresh that loaf of bread might be? Or if they complain that the bed that they have is too hard and I, and I start to get frustrated in my dreams because I don't want to deal with the complaints of people that you're serving because it's so hard. And when I think about those things, my dream of loving people vanishes. It's shattered and I'm really left wondering, is there a God? At this moment, the monk looks at her and he says something so profound. He says, I am sorry, I can say Nothing more consoling to you, for love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love and dreams. Love and dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed in the sight of all. But active love is labor and fortitude. I just love this monk's response, specifically the beginning of it because it, it just, he nails it in the response when he says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with the love in dreams. I, I, it doesn't say it in the story, but I am pretty certain that this wealthy woman looked at the monk and simply said, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted. I came to you for wisdom advice. This is not what I wanted. But let's be real, anybody could tell you they love you, right? We could say these things all we want. You could dream and have ideas about all the awesome things that you want to do to help change the lives around you. But this is simply all just love in dreams because love in action is so much harder. Love in action isn't always romantic, is it? It's not ooey-gooey, and it doesn't always feel good while you're doing it. And there's usually, with love in action, no immediate response that you get praised for. Love in action 
leaves us in a place where almost no one knows. Love and action is it's dirty, it's, it's draining, and it will always cost us. And please hear me saying, I love you. Using the word love in conversation is very, very important, but living out, I love you, is a completely different story. This kind of love shows up. It does when the words that we say are backed up with the sacrifices that we make. Right? It changes the entire story. It changes who we are as people deep down when we love without any expectation for something to change on them, but we find ourselves changed. And, and I really do believe, I believe deep down, that every single one of us wants to experience this type of love and to be loved this way. We want to not just be told, but to be showed by the way that people love us. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, our love, it stays contained in dreams where it's neater, it's cleaner, it's easier, it's safe. It's protected from others so that we don't really get hurt by them when our love isn't seen and praised and maybe we don't want to experience that sacrifice. We don't want the suffering that's involved in defining love and action. Maybe a better way to put it is this. We want love without suffering, but suffering is the pathway of love, right? We, we all want love without suffering, but suffering is the pathway of love. And, and I know you're probably sitting here like the wealthy woman in this story going, well, that is not what I wanted today. This is not what I came to church for. It's almost Christmas. You should be telling me like, like baby Jesus stories at this point, not saying the word suffering. That's Easter story stuff. That's why I skipped the week of Easter because it's uncomfortable. Listen, love is uncomfortable. It involves suffering. This is the pathway of love, and I need to tell you that this type of love does exist. It absolutely exists, and I know it's hard to find, and the reason that I know that this exists and we could see it is simply because... It looks like Jesus. You will know this love when it shows up continuing to look like Jesus because active love, it involves patience. It involves sacrifice. It involves suffering. And for Jesus, he showed us this love even to the point of giving up his life. And this type of love is, um, it's not just found in the person of Jesus. It's the very definition of God. It's the very definition of God that, because God is love. I, I love the way that we read about this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says that anyone who does not love does not know God for what? What is those last three words? Okay, say it like you actually believe this might be true and, and what, what the Bible has to say could really be truth. Okay, anyone who does not love does not know God for... God is love. And, and this is to me what makes Advent so beautiful, so amazing, is that God doesn't just tell us that he loves us. In active love, suffering and sacrifice, he sent his only son to be born into a dirty, uneasy, chaotic world. 
just like every one of us. He sent his son to show us what love looks like in the flesh, lived out side by side. And then he calls us to live out this very same type of love. In this series that we've been going through, we've been looking at the theme of each week and then pausing to say, okay, how is this a gift found in Jesus? And how did Israel miss this? And how did Mary and Joseph kind of see it? And when it comes to this idea of love, I really do think that sometimes as followers of Jesus, and maybe the better phrase is sometimes as contemporary evangelical Christians, if I could use that phrase, and I don't use it often, we put our own lens on how those in the Jewish faith view God because of how we view God in the Old Testament. That we, we look back and say, oh, God's not loving. Jesus is loving. And this New Testament God of Jesus is great. But this Old Testament God, not so great. Not so loving. But when it comes to understanding the sacrificial love of God, I'd almost argue this morning that I believe that Israel, they understood and they experienced this. And it wasn't neat, it wasn't clean, it wasn't safe. But they understood the love of God better than many of us understand the love of God. And I know you're probably thinking, nope. No, I, I think so. They understand God in a different way. But it's the very definition of who he is. So listen, if you're thinking, the, the God of the Old Testament's not loving. No, he is love. He hasn't changed. Right? He hasn't changed on us and all of a sudden went, oh, zero B.C.? BCE, whatever you want to get, zero mark. Oh, good, now it's time to shift gears. No, no, no. He has been loving. He is loving. He will be loving. He has not changed. Why do we say it that way? And I think it's because as we read the Old Testament and as we have soaped through this together, you know, soaping, it simply is this, it's the way that we read the Bible together. If you're not doing this with us, you're missing out. You're missing out, I'm sorry. But as we read this together, I, I know especially as we're in the Old Testament, the question continues to come up. If God loves people so much, why in the world did he become so angry with them? Why is he always punishing them? Why does he seem so vain and vindictive? Now, can anyone else here along with me be bold enough to admit that you've thought this about God in the Old Testament? Give it nice and high so you could see how look at we're all in this mess together, right? We read this Old Testament, these Jewish scriptures in this Hebrew Bible and go Dude, what's your problem? Like, are you always out and frustrated at people? What is the deal here? And I, I, I want to come alongside you in this question. And listen, there's tons of books that have been written on this about, you know, God's nature in the Old Testament and New Testament from people who are way smarter than I am. So I can't give you a summed up really quick, neat box answer to this question. And you may be thinking, well, that's not what I wanted. Don't bring up questions I don't like asking. You know, if there's no answer, don't say it. But, but if I can sum it up just kind of simply, as I look throughout the Hebrew scriptures, through a Hebrew lens, not through a Jesus lens, but through a Hebrew lens, I see a theme. And it's simply as God was angry with people because of his love for people. 
God was angry with people because of his love for people. And these nations around are constantly being punished because their citizens were cruel to people. They were oppressing the needy. They were killing innocents, both adults and children. And when you read through the Hebrew Bible with this Jewish lens, let me tell you, you see command after command after command to love people, to stand up for injustice when you see it, to stand against oppression when you see this. You should be caring for the poor. And there is a call that God has that his love for people, when that is not being met, anger does come. And, and, that, and that's not simply like, I, think, I don't think many Jewish people have this theology because they only have the Old Testament and their story is filled with oppression, is it not? It's filled with being pushed aside and being, you know, just completely tarnished. I, I think it's built out of the way that they see humanity. Their theology of the person matters because in the very creation story, they would build their view of all of humanity based off of Genesis 1.27. That every single person, it says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. That every person that you come in contact with and I come in contact with, they are created in the image of God. They are God bearers. Every single person matters to God. Let me say that again because I think as followers of Jesus, we think that we matter to God, but everybody else doesn't. This does not say God created Christians in his own image, does it? It says that God created human beings, that every person from Adam and Eve throughout all of history and all people born are created in the image of God and the Jewish nation understood that every single person has value and God said the command is to care for every single one of them. And when they're not being cared for, I'm ticked because you're destroying my image. Something needs to be done. According to the law, anyone who didn't care for the poor stand up for the oppressed is committing sin. And whenever we commit a sin, whether it is in action, and I'd argue for us today, whether it is in inaction, we use the energy that God has given us, the very breath that he's given us to do this. Think about this. We sin with the very ability of movement given to us by our creator. Let that sink in. If every breath in our lungs is his, with our breath we curse, with our hands we neglect. God not only refrains from taking away our abilities and our energy, he sustains us every day completely while we are in the very act of rebelling against him. Think about that. He, he actually gives us the energy that we use to reject him. How is this controlling? How is God sustaining us? Even when we sin against him, disobeying the commands to love people, how is this vindictive and vain and about him? I, I like the way that Moses sees this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says this, he says, think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child 
The Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. The Old Testament does not paint a picture of God being this deranged dude who's out to like reprimand and punish the, his children because he has nothing better to do or he just desires to be cruel. Right? That's not the picture that's painted when you read it. It's the, it's the picture we read, but it's wrong. It is wrong. Instead, we read about a God throughout the entire Hebrew scripture who reprimands and punishes people because of his love for people. In, when we go off the path, and this happens inside and outside of Israel, they're being punished all the time. Not only outside, inside they understood that it was simply about knocking them back onto the path of caring about the people who were around them, having no compromise for sin. This was about holiness and loving people, inviting them into a community where they could genuinely be loved. This was any time they pulled away from the unity of loving God and loving people. It was time for correction. And we all need correction, do we not? We all need correction. And I, <laughs> when I was growing up, I, uh, I, I, I don't know that I always understood all of this, and this may surprise many of you with the man standing in front of you, but I was not always the model child, um, to put it lightly. I was a, a child who was in constant need of discipline, <laughs> constant. Uh, I, I absolutely know that my parents did the best that they could with what they had in front of them and what the cards that life had dealt them. But uh, let me tell you, I was a pain nonetheless. Like I was a difficult kid. And when I disobeyed, one of the few things that got my attention was physical punishments, was spankings. And so... You could take away anything from me from however long. And I was like, fine, whatever. I'm like, I'll endure you. Uh, but a spanking got my attention. And so it, it was one of the ways that I responded, and I'm positive of this, is that, that when my parents disciplined me that way, it was never out of anger. And, and I love that, but I hated, I hated the phrase. And I remember hearing, like, does anybody else ever hear this phrase, this hurts me more than it hurts you? Anybody ever hear that one? Like, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And, and you know, as I got a little older, almost to that point where it was no longer the necessary uh, means of punishment, I remember getting a little older and logically thinking, yeah, then how about we switch this up? Let's see how much this hurts you instead of me. Like, let me get a feel for what it would be to give you this punishment because it sure hurts me. Like, this doesn't feel like it hurts you. Are you kidding me? And, and my suffering in those moments, it, it did not feel like love by any means. It didn't feel like love. But what I am certain of is that my parents knew that if I continued to go down the road that I was going, there would have been more police pickups than there already was. Right? That, that's, that it would have been worse going down the path, and true love was not letting me do whatever I felt like doing. True love was found in discipline and suffering on their part to say, my desire is not to punish you. My desire is that you would live this great life, but right now, that path, that's more destructive than the discipline of this path. This will destroy your life. This is painful now, and it hurts to do this because I don't want to hurt you, but this hurt is greater than that hurt. Never in their wildest dreams did I think that they decided to have kids because they desire to punish them. No parent chooses or doesn't choose to have a child because they desire to punish. 
but because of our love. It hurts a parent to see their child hurt, does it not? We know that our children, and I didn't understand this until I had kids, so we all know that our kids are not going to understand when we discipline them. It doesn't make sense until we all hit our mid-20s or wherever, we stop and we're like, I am sorry. Like, I was a pain. I get it. Something happens when we understand that suffering is just going to be a part of our life, when we've been disappointed enough and said, but the people around me aren't listening to me and it's going to lead them to pain. <gasps> oh, no, I did that. I wish we knew this when we were kids, but what I know is I did not see this as a child as punishment and suffering was love. It's part of it. I, I wanted love, but without the suffering, I had no idea that suffering was part of the pathway of love. Israel as a nation, let me tell you, they understood this. They did. They really did understood this be, understand this because they knew that God chose them. They, they received these covenant promises. And let me tell you, this is why I think um, in every Jewish story, they almost always bring it back to the Exodus. They bring it back to leaving Egypt because this is a story of God standing up for them. When they were in slavery for 400 years being oppressed, in God's timing, he says, the time is right now for you to leave. And he does all these miracles. He shows up in ways that finally Pharaoh's heart, I don't know if it's changed, if it's loosened, if he feels blind. I don't know the details to it, but I know that something changed where he's like, fine, just get out of here. You're driving me nuts. Get out of here. And they leave. And, and we see this as a great victory story, but we, what we don't always talk about is like God says, I'm going to take you to a promised land. There's a shorter way to the promised land than the way they go. Did you know that? There's a shorter way to the promised land, but God in his love makes them suffer a longer route. Not the 40-year route you're thinking about, but there's actually a longer route because if they went the short route, they would have hit some major armies and nations that were established. And God in his love... In that direction, you will be terrified because you are slaves. You are not warriors. You have no training. You know nothing but oppression. And if you get beat there, you'll go back to Egypt. And that's slavery. It's not what I want. Let's take a longer walk around. Let's just take a longer walk around. And, and they do. And then they get backed up against the Red Sea and they're complaining to God, like, this isn't fair. What's the problem? Like, I hate this. Pharaoh gets his wits, and he's like, I just lost my entire economy. All the slavery and economy, that my, like, this is, get him back. And all his officials, he gathers his army, he chases after him, and they're backed up, and they've got a sea at their back, and an army at their front, and they're like, oh, this is the worst. We should have just gone back. It was safer not. It was, it was easier being beaten than to be killed. And what they neglect to recognize is God and his love for them brought them this way because to once again show them his love. He opens this sea and they go through this sea. And when they go through the sea, it's millions that go through. And God blocks this Egyptian army until the point when the last person steps to the other side. And here's what's wild in this picture of my mind is the sea is opened. Israel's on the other side and God keeps it open till the entire Egyptian army is in there. He did not close it when the people were safe. He kept it open until the entire Egyptian army was in the sea. And then he removes his hands. 
and the oppressors, those who were demonstrating injustice to God's people were annihilated. And it's like, how could God do this? It was 400 years of slavery. How could they do that? No one should have to do this, and yet that's what it was. And when they get to the other side, can I tell you what Moses does with the rest of the nation? They find in their suffering that there's hope. And what do we do to find our place in hope after week one? We sing our way to hope. They sing a song. And this is the, in verse 13 of Exodus 15. Moses and the entire nation in their time of chaos sings their way to hope with this. With your, what's the two words there? With your unfailing love, you led your people and you, that you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to your sacred home. He knew this is what they needed. But thanks for loving us from the other side. This is still hard. I don't like it. And so they lose hope and they begin to complain. And he continues to discipline because they don't even show love to each other inside the camp. Like they're in constant need of little slaps. Elementary school, Pastor Jimmy, right there. This is what you need to stay in line. Because if you read through Numbers, which when we just read this in Soaping, right? You know Israel continued to disobey God, didn't they? And by disobeying God and sinning against them, they disrespected each other. They disrespected the people around them, and they did whatever they felt like. And God gets so ticked at them to the point of one of the most extreme punish punishments. And Moses begs God in Numbers 14. And this is what he prays for his people. He says, please, Lord, prove that your power is as, great as, that you've, as, as, is as great as you have claimed. For you said the Lord is slow to anger and filled with what? With unfailing love. This is what you've said about yourself. That you are forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. An entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. But in keeping with your what? Keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of these people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. Mars, Moses starts out this prayer by saying, please, God, please, I beg you, you've told us that you're loving. Would you lean into that? He never, ever, ever tries to make excuses for the sin, does he? He never tries to say, God, please don't be just in punishing our sin. The Jewish nation knew sin needed to be punished, and it was part of love. It was part of suffering, and they were fine understanding that this is part of our growth. Does it mean they have to like it? No. Does anybody like it? No. But he pleads with God in your magnificent, unfailing love, just like you showed us to get us out, just like this, and they continue to point back to God's love over and over and over, and the God of the Old Testament is filled with love. He is love. He's filled with compassion for his people to the point of even disciplining his own children when the path that they were headed would have led to complete destruction. He preserved them. You see, you, you can't separate God's love and God's justice. You can't. But we try, and we want the ooey-gooey Jesus stuff. And our New Testament 
simply says that Jesus is the embodiment of love, but the justice of sin of not caring for people is still lived out through Jesus, and it's part of love. I can understand how Israel would miss a baby, and the fullest demonstration of love incarnate, love with flesh and bones would be needy and be born into a suffering world. Like, no, just come on your horse and win. But they know that God loves them. They know this to the core of their being, and they're waiting for a loving Messiah to rescue them, still. But in Jesus, things look different. If you think about the story of Jesus through the lens of Mary and Joseph, let me tell you, you see nothing but love and action is a harsh and dreadful thing. It is difficult. Last week, we talked about peace, right? And we talked about how Simeon, when when he's praying over Jesus in the temple and he's like, I can die in peace now because I've seen this kid. This is great. And we ended it like, man, when we're with Jesus, there's this peace. But did you know after this prophecy over Jesus, he looks at Mary and he has something else to say. He has a word from God for Mary. And, and, and this is what he says, written by Dr. Luke in the biography of Jesus, chapter two. It says, then Simeon blessed them. He blesses them. He gives them a blessing. And he says to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Look at this last sentence. He's staring at Mary's eyes. He's holding Jesus in his arms. And he says, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Mary knew within the very first month of her child being born that he would be the center of suffering. That people would rise and fall because of him. That people would oppose him. And because of him, how many of us are so excited that our deepest thoughts in our hearts and our minds are going to become bare before people? Who's excited about that? Oh, not as many hands yet, right? No, I like my hidden stuff, but love doesn't let things stay hidden. Love gets it out. And Simeon closes with, a sword is going to pierce your soul. And it's like, how could that be a blessing? This is not a curse. This is preparation. Because loving her child would involve suffering through his suffering. And a suffering on a level that I never, ever wish for any parent ever. Knowing your child will pass before you. For the first four or five years, they did nothing but move. They suffered. There was no home that they had to go to. This wasn't survival, was it? This was actually simply love and action. We will sacrifice what we need for our family. And just like Israel, check it out. Jesus is called out of Egypt. He's called out of Egypt and he goes home and they're getting ready to go back to the promised land and he's like, I'm gonna go home. And they, they can't go home because it's still not safe. And I have a lot of compassion for Joseph and Mary. I have no idea what it would be like to parent Jesus. I mean, how do you discipline a child who doesn't sin? I have no idea. The, the, the closest thing that we get to them disciplining Jesus is actually in Luke chapter 2, where they forget him in Jerusalem for a couple days. So listen, if you ever question your parenting, if you have not left your child in another city for a couple days by themselves, you're doing better than God's parents, okay? You're doing better than Jesus' parents. Take a breath. 
when they, they go to get him and they're like, what were you doing? Like, what's your problem? Why were you with us? He's like, didn't you know you'd find me in my father's house? I'm like, this guy, how do you reprimand your kid for being like, just hanging out with God. Like, I just want to be at church and hang out with my friends and God, my father. Like, don't go after God? Like, what do you, what's the reprimand there look like? I, I don't know. But I know that when the time came, this love would involve an immense amount of suffering on a different level. That, that as Israel went through the sea, Jesus finds himself in the Jordan River. And he's being baptized. And in Israel's disobedience, they spent 40 years in the desert. And Jesus, in his obedience to the Holy Spirit, spends 40 days in the desert. And he fasts and he prays. And he finds this empowerment and victory in God that was to prepare him for a demonstration of love. Because love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. It's going to get messy for Jesus. And, and I think that Mary knew that. His first miracle is um, he was at a wedding. And that's not the suffering part of love, I know. They run out of wine at this wedding, which would have shamed this family. It would have been a huge burden of sin and issues that they would have carried. They did not honor their guests. Mary finds out about this, and she says, Jesus, you need to do something. And he's like, it's not my time. Like, she's saying to him, it's time to begin this path of suffering. He's like, it's not my time. And so she leaves him in that moment, and she turns to the servants. And what she says to the servants is, what a statement. She says to them, do whatever he tells you. Can we just receive the words of Mary to us today? Just do whatever he tells you. I, I was gonna, just do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. How much faith is it as a mom to know your son has the power to change this and you can't. So you look to the people that no one else will see. There is no accolades. There is no enjoyment. There is no one who will get glory from this except for the person who's running the party. Just do what that man says. Just do what he says. As soon as he does this, it's going to kick off three years of pain and suffering that his mom had to watch. She would have understood that when this started, there's no other place it could end than his death. But her love for him would be suffering to not protect him, to not step in. I can't imagine what her final three years would have been like. What is it like to watch your child endure suffering, to love them to a point to know this is for everybody. I wonder what it's like when Jesus goes home to Nazareth and he's sitting in the temple, right? I, I, I think Mary would have been there. And he goes to temple and he's handed a scroll and it's like, time to read. And it's like, cool. And he gets up to read and he's, he's reading this passage from Isaiah. And, and this is what he reads to everybody. He says, the spirit of the Lord's upon me for he's anointed me to bring the good news to who? To the poor. It's not to all these awesome people. He's standing up for the poor. I'm coming to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that the captives are going to be released, that the blind are going to see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Like the time is now. 
And he's saying it and he's reading it. They've read these words in that temple so many times, but now there's something behind it. And he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, he sits down and all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. That was different. They began to speak to him, the scripture, and he began to speak to them. And he says, the scriptures that you just heard have been fulfilled this very day. This sounds so cool, doesn't it? Like, wow, what's happening? Nope, as soon as Jesus explained in action what you just read is about to happen and is happening, love and action becomes harsh and they riot and try to kill him. Love and dreams, oh, let's talk about healing. Let's talk about the, love and dreams is great. Love and action is harsh and hard. It gets messy and it does for him. And he puts his love in action. The embodiment of love, the very prince of peace shows up as our suffering servant. I don't think we like some of this, do we? No one wants to choose suffering in love, but this love costs us. And Jesus' loving moments, while we have many of them written, most of them we don't. He's not posting to Instagram. He's not putting it on, you know, Israel book and making sure everybody sees it or you know, meta or whatever it was. You know, he's not putting anything out there to gain notoriety, to be seen. He's showing up where people are to say, I will love you. When they forgot about you, I will love you. It costs us something. And just before his crucifixion, at the Passover Seder with his disciples, celebrating the exodus together, this is what Jesus concludes with his disciples. In John 15, he says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command, this is my command. Love each other. Love each other like I loved you. Don't think about it. Don't dream about it. Just do what he says. Just do what he says. Jesus, love incarnate, the demonstration of God in the flesh would go on in the next 24 hours to be absurdly and brutally beaten and murdered in front of his mother. And yet our love stays contained in dreams where it's neat and it's clean and it's safe. It's protected so that we don't have to experience sacrifice and suffering because it's easier in the dreams than it is in action. Let me tell you, sacrificial love is not a requirement to follow Christ. It's a consequence of following him. Sacrificial love is not a requirement of following Christ. It is a consequence. If you follow Jesus and follow his teachings, you will love like him, and it will cost you. Welcome to Crossbridge. I do not want to be a church that paints a pleasant picture of following Jesus because it's easy, because that's not the Savior we follow. In the flesh, he lived out a life that he calls us to. If you're my friends, do what I'm commanding you. 
Go love people. Go show love. You know, Dostoevsky in that Brothers Karamazov chapter has a little bit more to that story, and it closes like this. When the elder or the monk says, I am sorry, I could say nothing more to console you. For love and action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love and dreams. Love and dreams is greedy. For immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. But active love is a labor and fortitude. Check this out. But I predict that just when you see with horror that in spite of all your efforts, you are getting farther from your goal instead of nearer to it. At that very moment, I predict that you will reach it and behold clearly the miraculous power of the Lord who has been all the time lovingly and mysteriously guiding you. You're worried about what this will cost. Everything is the answer. And you will not understand your suffering, and I don't understand it either. But I have hope in a God who gives me peace to take every step so that it doesn't matter what I give because he gave it all. What are you holding back from him today? You're not allowing him and saying, but God, that's too important to me to sacrifice for others. It's not worth it. Mary gave her son and watched him suffer. Don't get in the way of a strong Jewish woman trying to protect their family. It's trouble. They've got chutzpah. She could have stepped in and she did not. She watched him suffer. Your suffering is not in vain. It is a demonstration of love and maybe it's correction because you have not loved and I have not loved. But as we celebrate Advent, the gift of Jesus is his sacrifice and birth would end in death. A life of love. May we love like Jesus. Would you pray with me as Pastor Will comes up to lead us in celebrating communion together? God, I confess to you today, I hate sacrifice and pain. I don't like that things hurt because it's nice to experience things being pleasant and easy. Lord, I ask that you would give us great wisdom to not have to understand all things, but to see you in our suffering. That when we feel this, we wouldn't look for the accolades and the posts of, of love and for people to shower us with love instantly with likes and comments and, and those little things that we think matter do not. Because when we show up, we look like you. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us in our suffering as we celebrate Jesus, your suffering today. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.